Hi, my name is Angelo, and this is the Queer Talks podcast, where we talk with different professionals and subject matter experts on what they do, how they got there, and the unique perspective on the market that we're in. Queer Talks is the perfect podcast for anyone wanting to learn more about the corporate space. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Bugs. Thanks for uh, joining us. I'm glad to have you on board. It might be good to just uh, give you a quick introduction to who you are, um, where you're at in your current professional career, and, and I guess a bit of your work history and how you ultimately got where you're at. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Angela, for inviting me. It's great to be here. Um, yep, so my name is Bugs. Um, I am a graduate at Deloitte, uh, which I started in March this year. Um, I'm part of the investment and wealth advisory team in the assurance division, um, and that's part of the broader governance, regulation and conduct advisory practice. Um, I finished my master's of banking and finance last year in June, um, and I was actually meant to start this position back in July last year, but due to COVID, it got pushed back um, to March this year, which was which was all good. Um, and before that, I did a bachelor's of science at Melbourne University where I did engineering, but I sort of moved away from that career path after an internship at CSIRO. I figured um, it's good fun, but it just wasn't for me. It was a bit difficult. So stepped into the world of finance and yeah, here we are. No, awesome. It sounds like uh, you had a, quite a colourful work history and some would say that stepping into finance would be more difficult than potentially where you were at before. Um, <laughs> but now that's great that you're kind of taking direction where you want to uh, be in life. Um, mm. I guess to try and ease us in and let the listeners learn about you a little bit, I'll have two quick uh, icebreaker questions to kind of catch yeah. you off guard. The first one is, what do you wanted? What did you want to be when you were a kid? Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, so my mum studied law, um, and she always spoke about it really positively. My grandfather was a lawyer, um, and I don't know. When you're a kid, you don't really like know what professions do, right? So. Every time my mom would talk about law, I'd just be like, oh, yeah, I want to be a lawyer. But as soon as I got into sort of high school, I realized that I'm not good um, at long, at, like reading extensively and like memorizing and like being able to convey thoughts in a very argumentative manner. And I think that's one of the like, key necessities of being a lawyer. So, um, yeah, I stepped away from that that idea pretty quickly. Now, interesting. I think there's like people describe it as you're either super analytical or you're super kind of linguistic. It's good that you yeah. kind of found your footing early on would you ever consider yeah. switching sides again are you happy where you're currently at i'm, I'm happy where i am i think it's <laughs> gonna be too much work even if i wanted to switch now <laughs> no that's good that's good and the second question i have for you is if you could choose any other city other than melbourne where would you kind mm. of um live or like have your own little space oh any other city i'd have to go to new york um i did a exchange semester there um to new york um at the end of 2019 um so i spent some time in new york city and it's just amazing. It's just an incredible city to be, especially when you're young. I think that's the main thing. Um, enjoying that really fast-paced, really high-intensity work environment. Um, even you don't have to do it for a long time. If you just experience it for a year or two, get your your head around that kind of environment. I think you'd flourish anywhere in the world. So that's that's definitely where I want to go. That's a good answer. It's a very kind of career-driven answer as opposed to like a touristy one. I feel like I'd agree yeah. with you. It's a very international yeah. financial hub type of vibe. Hey. Yeah, it does. It does. It just gets you set up. Like I've got mates working there now and they've just stepped up their game completely from uni. It, it's crazy. Huge. And would you consider kind of looking at those inter international opportunities in your own career progression or is that kind of confidential for now while you're getting started? Yeah, no, I'm, 
<laughs> completely up for it. Yeah, yeah. If something comes up um, and it's something viable and it fits like with my life plans and my partner's life plans as well, if she's happy to, to move with me, I'd definitely be up for it. It'd be great. Yeah, huge. Very exciting. Well, I feel like you're in a, a good position to kind of take that <laughs> charge wherever you want to go. No, yeah, awesome. Definitely. Awesome, awesome. And I'll jump in with this first question, I guess, kind of to funnel <clears> in um, what you do. And quick, if you could give us like a real in-depth kind of what what is it that you really do in your own kind of in your jurisdiction i guess you're in your little portfolio there at deloitte because they do a whole heap of different things almost kind of blanket terms i guess what does it entail yeah 100 percent. so yeah you're right look deloitte do pretty much everything and anything you can think of um so within deloitte there are i would say six major functions um you know you've got like risk advisory consulting you've got your tech you've got your internal services you've got your audit and assurance and that's where i sit so um i'm within the audit and assurance division and then underneath that i sit under assurance um audit as you know uh, mostly financial statements external audits um assurance ranges to a very like a very large number of services i think the most popular one would be internal audit so for any listener who doesn't who's not aware um external audit and internal audit they defer with one key aspect and that's uh, external audit is focusing on your financial statements, whereas internal audit is focusing on a particular process within a function in an organization. And there are various types of internal audits that you can you can uh, undertake. Uh, there's GS007, SPS reviews, um, all of these are particular frameworks that companies have to abide by, depending on the kind of services they provide, whether you're insurance, superannuation, banking, investment management, you know, it's just a big four that we sort of look into. So, um, yeah, under my team. So my team is the investment and wealth advisory team. Um, but I sit under a, a, a wider team that, again, services banking, insurance, superannuation, wealth management. My team focuses primarily on the wealth management side of things. So, uh, and we do things like internal audits. We do GS007. We do SPS231 reviews, um, basically reviews of frameworks that we have directors who've specialized in to lead these sort of engagements. Um in addition to that, we do things like post-royal commission reviews. So if, um, you know, one of the big four, for example, come to us saying that um, we need someone to review this particular process or the findings from the royal commission, which just happened, um, you know, sometimes they'll come to the big four and say, we need, you know, X, Y number of people to come and review all these processes. Um, and typically two or three of the big four will take on that, that, that job because it's such a large uh, engagement. So... I know for the last year and a bit, that's been primarily uh, the focus for a number of our teams. Um, and we just call that a post-Royal Commission review. Um, and it's again, it's very simple. It's kind of like an internal audit, very risk-oriented. Um, and, and that's effectively what an internal audit is. You break down all the risks that um, have been identified. You understand what went wrong in the process. And then you understand, you know, how do you rectify it? Are you addressing the root causes? Um, and then you're effectively providing assurance. That's what it is. You're, you're signing off saying that this has now been rectified or it's on the way to be rectified. And then they would pre- then present that to ASIC or APRA um, or the ACCC, depending on who the regulator is. And then they would have to give the official sign off saying, yeah, we're happy that, you know, uh, effectively the customer or the client are being done right. So uh, I know that was a lot. Uh, may not make sense mm-hmm. um, in, a, in, a, in a heat, but it, it is a very big team. Um, and yeah, you can take on any one of those projects. Uh, it all depends on what's available, what resources are required, um, and where your expertise or where your skills lie. Yeah, no, awesome. It sounds very, quite varied and extensive. And I kind of yeah. wanted to drill in a bit deeper and ask you 
what have, mm. what's like a key highlight that you've taken on board this past few months or past year that you've been in, in that division? Yeah, I think for me, it is the varied skill set of, you know, you're learning so much at once. Um, and when you're in such an environment, you realize that you're growing at a really fast rate, like all the skills you're learning, everything you're learning from the people around you, from your directors, your partners, you're sort of grabbing bits and pieces here and there. And then over six months, you realize that, you know, the person you were six months ago is just completely different almost, you know, like you've learned so much, you've gone through so much, you've made so many more networks and connections. Uh, you've worked on various engagements. Um, and by that point, you're pretty proud of what you've achieved because your name is on those reports. So look, ultimately, I would say that at the end of the day, it's, you know, everything you learn, whether it's audit assurance, whether you're doing consulting, whether you're doing risk advisory, whether you're doing tech, whether you're in internal services, whatever function you're in, what you learn on the job, uh, obviously it's very different to university, what you learn on the job in those first six months to a year really defines who you become and defines uh, what kind of clients you want to serve, what kind of person or what kind of professional you want to be in this world, um, and also drives what you get satisfaction of. So I think most people understand why they work where they work in the first six to one year. So that's what I would say. Mm, very interesting perspective. And I guess on the back of that, your statement, how you mentioned that it's very different from uni studies, for example, well, we're mm. like maybe name like three things that really took you by surprise or any myths that upon really entering that field were dispelled as soon as you started. Or if you could just talk to us about any of those real shakeups as soon as you started working. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I think one of the big ones is um, there's always a question about whether you use your degree and your studies at, at work. And I would say that depending on the field you take and, you know, what corporate life or what corporate career you end up pursuing, um, the answer can be yes and no. For me, I am using, I'm definitely using a bit, but not as much as I thought. Um, and I know others that aren't using it at all. Um, and again, it all comes down to, um, to what you studied and, and how you studied it and how well you did as well. Um, to me, that wasn't too much of a shock. I was sort of, um, you know, my director told me that you'd learn 95% of what you're going to do on the job. Um, what was a shock to me was just how much there was to do and how big my team was. Um, so my team relatively is fairly small. I'd say there's about 20 of us across Australia. Um, and then my parent team, there's probably about 75 of us across Australia. But given that there's only 20 of us handling basically all the engagements across the wealth management sector, what hit me was that you've got at any one time four to five engagements going on and you're working with, you know, that means four to five different directors, four to five different partners, competing deadlines, completing obligations. You know, how do you manage as a graduate? How do you realistically manage expectations from a partner and a director? And how do you go back and realistically say, I can't get this done or I have to prioritize something else because of X, Y, Z. So these are all these sort of like relationship management, client management, stakeholder management skills that you grasp on the job. And it was a shock for me because you can't teach that, right? It doesn't matter how many, how many lessons you go through, how many workshops you do. There's nothing you can do to really teach how to be in that kind of an environment. You just have to learn it on the job. And what I think is great is that I don't think there's a wrong way to go about it. It's just how you manage people, really. And, you know, if you've made it into Big Four, if you made it into a corporate work, regardless of you know, where you're working at the moment, I think you've got the capacity to do it. And I think we do it better at uni, I think. You know, we go through group projects where we've got people that just don't, you know, 
do their part pretty much. You've got people that do uh, a lot more than usual. You've got people that don't want to respond much. And so you work through that whole people management thing. Um, it's sort of similar at, at work where you've got similar sort of competing things going on. Um, but it is a shock nonetheless. And I'm sure everyone who goes through that corporate life will experience this at some point. So, yeah, hope that answers that part. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I feel like I've heard that quite a bit in different podcasts I've listened to or people mm. who have reached out to who provide me kind of ad hoc mentorship where it's yep. this whole corporate space, regardless of where you, where you might be, as you said, is very people focused. Like anyone, anyone who's churned out of the, the tertiary education system can do the job. But the yep. question is how well they can do it in that people yeah. mindset type of thing. Cause you're, you're liaising with a whole heap of different stakeholders at different yep. institutions. And that's really what you need. And it's, it's kind of, it, it sounds cliche most of the time, but it's great. Cause like I've known you personally as well. It's, it's great mm. to hear it from you as well. Um, so yeah. it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I kind of wanted to circle back on what you mentioned previously, how you have kind of a smallish team, but you have a lot of engagements on foot. I was wondering yep. if you could run us through, um, and I guess this is on the back of also a lot of different myths about the day in the life of, a, of anyone mm. in the big four. If you could run yep. us through like what your what your day would look like from, I guess, what the yep. most boring aspect is the most exciting and, yep. and in person or maybe virtually, whatever you're, you, you're currently in at the moment. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I'll do uh, in person first. Um, so going into the office and all that. Um, so I live about uh, I would say, you know, 20 minutes away from the city without traffic. But when there's traffic, it's like 45 minutes to 50 minutes easy, which is annoying. I hate it. Um, so a typical day, I would wake up usually around 6, 6.15. Um, I try and leave the house by around 7.15, get to the office around 8. Um, I'll get in, you know, I'll have, to, I'll have my breakfast at office. So I usually have to keep like yogurt and stuff in the fridge. Just to, I'm trying to bulk. I'm sure you know what that's like. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I'll do all that. I'll get set up. I'll generally like, you know, be up and ready to start working by 8.30, which means I'm checking my emails 8.15 or so, get a coffee. Um, I'll give you my busiest days. My busiest days, I would finish, I would pretty much work straight from 8.30 to about 12, get lunch with the lads, uh, come back to work around 12.30, 12.45, maybe one sometimes, depending on if it's a Friday or not. And then I'd work again straight right through to like 6.37. Um, I guess yep. moving on from that, from that, I guess I just wanted to ask, were there any skills that you you possess and that you see in your your other colleagues that are quite common mm. in your own division um, mm. that that really allow you guys to exceed in your current roles? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I would say communication is right up there. I would say that's probably my number one if I was to start recruiting for someone to work under me, and that's because from the get go you will be working with clients, um, and this is in an environment like the big four. Um, and you know, even if you were to get a job at like one of the banks, for example, or at a smaller firm, you will be working with your end user effectively, right? Whether it's a client, whether it's a customer, and you need to be able to interact with them and maintain that relationship and build on it and develop it. And that's a big thing. Um, I'll speak on behalf of Deloitte on this, and that's clients and managing clients is like number one on our list for sure. So when I was getting recruited, and I, I know this, this about the other graduates in my cohort right now, it's that even if they don't have all the answers or even if, you know, they've got other things that are lacking, their communication is on point. Um, they're able to hold a conversation really well. Um, they're able to articulate thoughts in a very coherent manner. Uh, and they're able to do so with a particular time limit with, um, you know, competing issues coming forward, different viewpoints, whatever it is. And I'd say that's something that 
if you feel like you are lacking, definitely work on it now whilst you're at university. I know unis do a great job now. Your final year, you will have uh, subjects where you're pushed together with groups. You'll have presentations. I think that's great. I think people don't really value that as much as they should because those opportunities will give you um, the training you need to speak in front of small group of people, large groups of people, being able to uh, present ideas, um, being able to um, you know take questions, answer them, retaliate, etc. That will come in the workplace. And it's more stressful in the workplace because when you join as a graduate in a big four, and I know at Deloitte, the client will look at you as a professional, right? I know some clients will say, okay, he's just a graduate. He might not have all the answers or she might not have all the answers. Um, but I know other clients where they go to the graduate and you know their mindset is this person will have the answers I'm looking for. And it's up to you to then being able to say, okay, if I don't have the answers, I'll get them for you or I will get the answers for you right now. Mm. So that, you know, the communication, that nuance comes into play quite frequently. Um, and it's not the number one skill. I think that I was, I wouldn't say I was, I was the best. I was decent at communicating. Um, I definitely found out there were things I had to learn after I joined the workforce. But uh, as a starting point, I was pretty happy with it. Um, and I think that's something that really stood out during my interviews and during my assessment center as well. Interesting. I think that comes back to what we were talking about previously, how everything is very client-based and, and you mentioned that sure you might not know the answer but you just let them know that look this is the issues i've understood them now it is my yeah. job now to look at the answer i might not have it now but you've articulated that you've kind of yeah. i guess instilled trust through your that that communication that client building skill is is what yeah. will differentiate you from from other other candidates and other analysts and yeah 100 yeah, yeah. When partners and directors recruit, right, they want to make sure they can put you in front of clients with no risk. Um, that's like probably the number one thing on their list is like, can I put this person in front of a client on a meeting and be absolutely sure that they're not going to screw anything up or say something stupid or, um, you know, they're just going to be like, they'll be professional about it and they'll be a Deloitte employee about the way they go about things. And I'm sure it's the same at KPMG and PwC and, and, and EY. And that's the biggest thing. And you can see it from the get go. Um, the moment you join, you'll be put into meetings with clients, um, which means that they're trusting you with that responsibility. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. I mean, if I was a client, I'll definitely, even the way you're coming across now, I'm sure my our listeners will uh, very agree with me on this. <laughs> they're very trustworthy already from the jump. And I guess on, on top of that, while we have uh, such a trustworthy individual on, on the podcast, it'd be great to pick your brain a little bit. Um, mm. And I wanted to kind of dive deep into your thoughts on this current new ESG landscape, you know, we've had the recent yeah, IPCC yeah. reports that yep. weren't amidst the COP26 meetings and especially yeah. in, in your own division, wealth management mm -hmm. is a crazy pillar here in Australia. And yep. I guess some experts are really forecasting that it'll be reintegrated into how we invest things and, and that whole yep. landscape. Kian, I guess my first question is, well, what are your thoughts on it? And if you could give a rundown mm. to, our, to our audience and next part is, have you seen that in your work and do you anticipate that really uh, being integrated in how you do things? Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Um, starting off with what I think about it, I think it's fantastic that these uh, issues are coming up and they're being more recognized as the norm. Um, I think ESG has like the concept of it has been around for a while now. Um, I don't think it's any, any sort of um, foreign concept to understand, you know, exactly where, especially in wealth management to understand where your money's being invested 
Um, there's obviously a lot of concerns now, given that the world is so so much more globalized than it was, say, two decades ago, right? Understanding where you're investing your money, where that money is growing, um, you know, what is being, what is that money being used for, essentially? That's a big thing. Um, and I think it's important that people understand that and people understand the issues that are coming out of that, um, particularly with regards to things like climate change, things like, um, I know there's a lot of um, uh, bans on countries investing because they can't monitor where the money's being spent, whether it's fraud, whether it's, you know, terrorism related, whether it's um, just issues that, that we believe uh, don't resonate with that of our company, with that of our country, with that of our own moral character. So, look, for me, I think it's fantastic these things are coming out right now. Um, I believe there's still a bit of work that needs to be done on promoting these issues. I think um, currently I'm doing the CFA. I know there's a chapter on CFA with regards to ESG and understanding um, how companies self-report these things. And I think right now that's what the landscape is, right? It's very like voluntary investment firms and managers are voluntarily putting these things forward. Um, I know micromanagement companies like, um, I think Robinhood do it, um, and I'm sure Comset Pocket, I think, do it as well. But you can choose to invest in socially responsible entities as part of your portfolio, um, which is great. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, I, I reckon we're about a decade away from these issues being mandated to be followed. Um, and it's going to be really tricky, right? Because it's very hard to prove something happening in, in another country is the reason for not investing. Um, it's happening slowly. I think that we're on, on the right path. Um, I'm happy that it's being, being brought up now. And I know that the clients that I'm uh, working with on a day-to-day -day basis are heavily invested in these issues because, as I said, the world is getting more globalized. People are becoming more aware of these kind of things and questions will start coming up. Right, whether it's from customers, whether it's from clients, asking, "Where are you investing my money?" Right, um, and it can be the simplest issues. Like I know someone who will not invest in any tobacco company. So if there's any sort of uh, parent company that has a subsidiary as a tobacco company, they won't invest in them. But I don't think people are aware of just how interconnected companies are right now. So I think that knowledge and all of that awareness of what's going on with regards to ethics, uh, social issues and governance issues, I think we're about a decade away from being fully grasped in this concept. Um, I wish it was sooner. Um, we're talking about climate change right now at the CFP going on. I think if there were more awareness, uh, say a decade ago, then we would be in a much better position right now. But, you know, we have to work with what we've got. So... Yeah, I would say 10 years from now, we should be in a really good position to be able to say or oh, have ASIC and APRA have regulations and provide customers or clients with the uh, assurance that uh, investment firms, managers, banks have to abide by certain regulations and rules, um, which we're seeing now. But I think there still needs to be a bit more work done. Yeah, I agree. And I guess I think I speculate myself that ever since the pandemic here, we've just become this more globalized civilization. We were previously, but it was the real catalyst yeah. for change. And especially with yeah. our and younger generations, it's really uh, on the back foot of this climate change problem. I really think it is also going to be a real watershed in, in how we do things. And I also yeah. believe that I think that there's talks of it being almost on the same level in terms of actually enacting into law, almost the same level as modern slavery, even AML, CTF laws, 
and which is yep. very interesting to see. I guess we'll see how yep. that pans out in, in the near future, but it's great to have your perspective on that matter. I guess I just wanted to ask as a, I guess, a graduate, as part of a, uh, a global company in that regard, do you guys mm. regularly have kind of updates and other jurisdictions that may have these issues at the forefront of how they operate compared to areas that in Australia, for example, are kind of lagging mm. behind players such as the US or Hong Kong maybe? Do you guys use that international perspective to kind of deliberate on these global issues? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I wouldn't say it's as frequent um, by itself. So Deloitte uh, Australia is part of the Deloitte Asia Pacific Network. So uh, for, for Deloitte, for example, we've got various networks across the world. So there's Deloitte US, there's um, Deloitte UK, Deloitte Asia Pacific, um, and Asia Pac includes like you know Korea, Japan, um, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, and Australia and New Zealand. Um, so we do get updates from Asia Pacific quite regularly. I wouldn't say we get as many updates from US and UK. That being said, though, I would say a quarter of my team have come from Deloitte UK. So by happenstance, you know, I've been connected with, you know, various uh, different publications and uh, knowledge sharing that goes on within Deloitte on these issues. So personally, I have. I wouldn't say company-wide it hasn't happened to the extent I would like just yet. Um, but we obviously have resources to look back on, right? We've got Yammer and like, you know, the international, all these like intranet websites that we can use to connect with each other. Um, so if people want to, the resources are there, but it's not happening by itself, I would say. Um, but we are getting updates. And I think that right now, Australia does need to put itself in the forefront, I would say. Um, I think that it's very easy for us to follow in another country's footsteps and say, and try to learn from their mistakes. But I, I also think that there's merit in sort of taking the charge on some things. Um, and, you know, we've got very, very intelligent, uh, I guess, lawmakers and people in this country to make decisions. Um, and I think that we're in a prime position to be able to, to make a, a choice or put a stance forward on things like ESG and write it into law so that uh, not only are we protecting people in the future, but we're, we're not waiting, if that makes sense, because that waiting game that we've been playing for the past, you know, five, six years, I think has only really put us behind on yeah. a number of various issues. Yeah, I agree. And I guess that comes back to that term, how money runs the world, and especially in the wealth management space with trillions of assets under management, I'm sure it'll be yeah. a real big, uh, I guess, variable that may incite change in the future. Very, very exciting to kind of watch the space to see that at least it's, it's, it's in the, it's in kind of the game plan of different firms and different areas of the world. And I guess on the yeah, back sure. of how you mentioned you had that knowledge sharing overseas. Personally, I I always wanted to work on an international level. And for any other listeners who want to break into uh, Deloitte or the industry and to just have that whole corporate feel, what do you, what do you guess your your final tips or, or advice for anyone looking into either breaking into your specific division or just mm. the, the big four consulting space in general? Yeah, for sure, for sure. This is a big one. I think I get this the most often, I think, is the question. Like, I'm, sure. I'm sure you do. Yeah, I, I would say, look, number one, I would say is really understand why you want to work for the company you're applying for, right? It doesn't have to be a big four. It doesn't even have to be a, a bank. It doesn't have to be a BTF firm. But if it's a smaller firm as well, understand why you want to work there and be able to explain it because that's the question that comes up probably the most at the start. Um, understand your genuine reason for wanting to work there and 
don't shift away from that. It's very easy to tell when an applicant isn't genuine. And I've, I've been to a fair few assessment centers now with the next year's grads coming in. And you can tell a lot of them, you know, some of them are obviously very nervous. Some of them are trying to put on, um, trying to demonstrate that they are capable. I think that you can do that whilst being genuine. Uh, and I think recruiters are very good at understanding who genuinely wants to work at the firm and, you know, who just wants to get out of uni and get a paycheck pretty much. So that's number one. Two, practice. Um, the recruitment now for big four is insane in Australia, I would say, right? You're going through, I, I went through myself like seven or eight steps, I think it was. I did the online Jeez. application, psychometric testing, the online video interview, like the one-way one. Then you got a phone call with the recruiter um, and then you've got your assessment center and then you've got a resume review from a manager and then you've got your interview with the director and then an interview with the partner, right? So it's like nine steps that you have to sort of pass progressively. It's stressful. It's really stressful. I would say the hardest part is getting up to that first interview or even getting up to the assessment center because you will have an interview at the assessment center. And everything before that is in your own hands, I believe, because you can practice your psychometric testing. You can make sure your resume is up to standard using resources at university, resources that you can find online for free. And your video interview one way is recorded, which you can practice yourself. So I believe everything up to that point is in your own hands. There is definitely a bit of luck involved with regards to the cohort that you're testing with. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that's where it can get a bit unlucky, um, especially if your cohort is super smart and, you know, you might get, you know, a 50 on the percentile rank when next year that would have gotten you an 85, for example. Um, so it is a bit of luck, but I would just say practice, give yourself the best shot and don't take anything for granted, I would say. So if you make it to an assistant center, you know, treat it with respect um, and enjoy yourself while you're there, I would say, because people who enjoy themselves a bit are a bit more genuine. Um, I understand you really want to impress the recruiters. You want to show them that you are professional and everything, which is fantastic. Do that. Um, but don't forget to be yourself. Um, demonstrate why you want to work there. Um, practice all the questions. Um, assessment centers now, I'm sure that there's plenty of resources online now breaking down literally all the big fours assessment centers, how they run, what they're looking out for. Use those tips, um, use your friends. Um, and then, yeah, so everything I would say is getting up to that assessment center is your hardest part, I think. Once you're at the assessment center, it's a lot, I would say, you should be more comfortable from that point onwards because then they see you for who you are, right? And if you're good at you know, communicating with people, communicating with individuals, um, learning from other people, answering questions, uh, just being yourself, what I've seen is that the majority of people will make it to interview. And from there, it's a matter of, you know, taking it one step at a time. So, yeah, look, I would just say apply to as many places as you can. Don't be fixated on the one. I know people that only apply to one big four and, you know, they're very set on it. Be a bit more open. Understand that, you know, thousands and thousands of applications are coming in. So apply to as many places as you can. Um, you might not know what the team does specifically. Don't stress too much about that because um, at each at some stage you will have a call with the recruiter or with the manager and you can then understand a bit more about the team. And even if it's not the team that you really, really want, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't transfer to that team at a later stage in your career, right? So again, um, from the get-go, make sure that, uh, that you're practicing, make sure that you're using all the resources available to you. Um, and when you are applying, so this is something I should have said at the start, when you are applying for a position, 
Um, make sure that you're tailoring your responses to that position. So one thing we always see is people using the same resumes everywhere, right? Um, make sure that you are changing that resume up for every position that you're applying to. doesn't matter that it's a graduate job. doesn't matter that it's a big four. Um, edit, understand what the big fours stand for, understand their values, all that kind of stuff, um, and use that knowledge and really push it in any sort of medium that you're communicating across, whether it's uh, online video interview, whether it's your phone call with the recruiter, um, and yeah, just try and have fun with the process. I know that's really difficult to do, especially when it's so stressful trying to get a job, but when you have fun, you're a bit more genuine, you're a bit more laid back. Uh, you can think a bit clearer, um, and you can ask questions as well. And, um, it's a big thing. I think, um, is that when you get to the interview stage, it is a two way street. You do need to ask questions, understand why you want to work there and really understand if it's a place you want to work, because, um, I have seen graduates join a position or a firm who later then come out maybe two months saying, you know, maybe they made the wrong choice because they didn't truly vet the company properly and they weren't too happy with the team or whatever it was. So, you know, make use of all the things available to you. Um, but yeah, don't stress about the application process. It is tough, but, um, you know, unfortunately it is what it is. Yeah, that's true. And it's very real advice that you kind of just have to play the game and try to yeah. place yourself in the best light and just how it is. Hey, very competitive yeah. for good reason. You're out here working on the most meaningful matters with, with very incredible institutions and liaising with, with yeah. your colleagues overseas. So very exciting stuff, but also very difficult. And yeah, thanks for sharing that uh, very, very real advice that kind of departs from the normal hr -y type of advice that they give at different campus events. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's very easy to get, get, get drawn in, I think, to a lot, of, a lot of the stuff. But I think at the end, you do need to remain realistic about everything that's going on um but at the same time that's not you know that's not a push down on on applying and, and not applying um just give it your best um and don't be disheartened if you don't get anything um because there is always next year yeah awesome awesome well thanks so much for sharing a whole heap of different stuff i feel like we've we've touched on a whole whole range of different matters from living in new york to esg <laughs> so it's really great to have you bargs and um we are very thankful to have you on board thank you no worries. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bugs. Thank you for joining us. We hope you learned a thing or two. Don't forget to check out our socials included in the show notes, and we'll see you for the next episode. Bye for now.